0: Several years ago, Vice President Al Gore, then retired, helped to fund as well as direct a film entitled An Inconvenient Truth, which was about climate change and the potential outcomes of climate change. It was to sober us to recognize an ecological disaster that would soon be on our heels. Now, agree or disagree with Al Gore and his conclusions, but it's a good title, a good title, An Inconvenient Truth. And I find that the Bible is filled with inconvenient truths and things that I would rather avoid like the plague. Uh, in fact, I was thinking about which lesson should I preach this morning and I thought to myself, "Self, I'm definitely not preaching about 1 Corinthians 10. I'm dodging that one." And then but the Holy Spirit exists and he was like, "Yeah, no, you're not." Like that's exactly what you're where you're going to go. And so, I'm going to be dealing with this very challenging passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So today's sermon, fair warning, is very Lenty, very lenty, and in fact, even surgical. But I find, friends, that the surgical parts of Holy Scripture are surgical for a reason because we all have within ourselves existential spiritual tumors that need to be removed so that they don't do even more damage than they've already done. And so I think whenever we hear hard words from Scripture, we could be defensive, we could obfuscate, or we could do the more courageous and Christian thing, which is to say, there's probably something in this that I need to hear. And so we're going to be looking today at 1 Corinthians 10, uh, particularly verses 1 through 11. And I'll be speaking to you this morning about the fact of judgment, as well as the causes of judgment, the fact of judgment and the causes of judgment. Now, regarding the fact of judgment, the context is important to mention just briefly. The letter to the Corinthians, especially the first letter, is almost one big scold, uh, from the Apostle Paul to Christians who are behaving in a notoriously bad and toxic way. Uh, now, within that very lengthy scold, there are uh, several chapters that have to do with Christians misbehaving within a worshiping context. So a big bulk of this letter has to do with public worship, the Christian assembly in the church. Chapters 10 through 14 are that section. Our verses today kick off that section about public worship. Because the Corinthians were being especially irreverent in that setting. And Paul is so unnerved with their flagrant depravity and borderline blasphemy and sees it as a real danger that he wants to remind them of certain dark occurrences within the Old Testament. He says, your behavior right now is like their behavior back then. And it didn't bode well for them back then. So it probably won't bode well for you right now. That's what he's doing. He's looking at the Old Testament as a a mirror. He wants to use the law to really waken them, to quicken them. And so this is what it says in verses 1 through 5. Please read it along with me. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and also passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, what is Paul doing here? Paul is summarizing the miracle history of (coughs) Israel, and he is saying that that miracle history was experienced not by a few But by all, notice the word all is repeated. He's saying this was a universal experience of the grandest miracles up until Christ, the grandest miracles that the human race had ever seen. They all passed through the Red Sea. They all ate the manna in the wilderness. They all drank from the rock. And notice that that miraculous founding of Israel did not create repentance and faith in many people. Sometimes we're very naive, you know, like we think if we just saw a very clear answer to our prayer If we just saw blind eyes being opened if we saw lupus cured if we if we have that We have this relative in the hospital when we anoint them We pray and we expect them to walk out totally cancer-free and if that happened we would sign on the dotted line not really Many people saw the miracles of Jesus and were, were unconvinced or just thought they were, oh, with time, thought they were sort of unremarkable or just that they weren't convincing enough. You know, the same thing happened back then. But Israel experiences miracles. They experience Old Testament, almost sacramental experiences, right? He uses sacramental language. They were all baptized in the sea, right? Baptized by Moses. And they all fed. They they ate spiritual food. They drank spiritual drink. And yet, after experiencing all these things, they turned away. And God was not pleased. What is Paul doing? Paul is here making a contemporary point based, based on ancient experience. He is saying to his present audience the Corinthians, you may have received New Testament sacraments. That's what we call them, sacraments, right? You were baptized. You were fed with the spiritual food. That doesn't make you immune from judgment. They were overthrown after experiencing all these things. And he makes a present point in verse 12. So let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Just because you've experienced certain rituals within the life of the church, it's not enough. So Paul is here warning Christians, Christians of judgment, begs the question, what sort of judgment? While many people, many readers, errantly conclude that Christians, according to St. Paul in this passage, are therefore in danger of eternal judgment and hell, that really salvation in the Christian life is like water poured, poured into your cupped hands, and if you part your fingers just a little, it all slips away. And you lose everything and have to somehow regain everything through certain rites of the church or through certain intentionality in prayer or through certain degree of repentance. That view of salvation is Pelagian. It is absolutely life-killing, and it is not what the New Testament teaches at all. Uh, that contradicts the New Testament for the New Testament says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and means that on an eternal scale. And the New Testament says that we are justified by grace only, not through present or future obedience ever. And if that is the case, what does Paul mean by judgment? Well, judgment is a flexible term in the New Testament and, truth be told, in the Old Testament. It can mean a myriad of things. It can mean something eternal or it can mean something temporal. That is something that occurs in this life, in this world. And that's very clearly what Paul has in mind here. Because later in verses 7 through 10, and we'll get there, Paul expresses the kind of judgment that was given to Israel when they had sinned against the Lord. And that judgment was death they died. They were destroyed in this life. They died. He doesn't mention anything about the next life. By the way, Paul draws a similar conclusion in the very next chapter of scripture. In 1 Corinthians 11, he starts unpacking the Lord's Supper. What happens eucharistically when you receive the supper unworthily, meaning without faith and without a sense of your unworthiness and need for it? He says this, in uh, chapter 11, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment. That's there's the word on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. The same thing happens, though, in a more zappy incident in Acts chapter five. You may remember these two heroes, Ananias and Sapphira. Like nobody had to give all their money away. St. Peter did not tell people Put everything on eBay, sell it, and give me the money. But these people said, we put everything on eBay, and we give you everything. We hold nothing back because we are magnanimous and generous, and we believe in the cause, and they were instantly zapped and killed, (laughs) right by God. Um, That's a more radicalized form of this judgment, more immediate. And so clearly in this passage, it's all over the passage, Paul is talking about severe judgment, but he's talking about severe judgment in this life, he is not addressing someone's justified status before God or eternity in heaven. He's warning of temporal judgment, and this is really important. And actually, it's, in a way, good for us to hear in a good word, because God has a mechanism built into creation that governs and limits evil and chaos. We can call this cause and effect, or we can cause this. You call this you reap what you sow. But there is a sense in creation that if you do certain things... Creation or reality pushes right back at you in judgment. In fact, when we act out of accord with God's design, God's reality, reality always wins. Always wins. That's what St. Chrysostom says. The golden-tongued preacher said, The man who strikes the mountain is judged by the mountain. What do you mean? If you punch the rock, you're going to get a bloody fist. It's on you. You're judged for doing something stupid. Um, well, Paul's point is that's especially true for the people of God. And as much as I wish this wasn't in the Bible, it is. So is First Peter 4.17. Judgment begins in the household of God. Remember, the Old Testament prophets were not really critical of the Assyrians, for the most part, or the Egyptians or the Babylonians. Only if they attacked Israel. Really, the people that they were after are the people that bound themselves to God in covenant and then didn't act like they bound themselves to God in a covenant. Uh, the same thing is true here. Judgment begins in the household of God or Hebrews twelve six. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. Judgment is how God pushes back against chaos and sin in the world and in the church. And I want you to notice the judgment of the Lord doesn't always wait till the end of time or the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord invades this day. To judge right here and now, as terrifying as that is. Now, I have to say this. It's important that I say it. Obviously, the temporal judgments, the judgments in this life, are not often an immediate death sentence. How do I know that? Because I would have been zapped this morning, and so would have you, probably. Instead, the judgment of the Lord very often takes a Romans 1 flavor. What does Romans 1 say three times? And God gave them up, or gave them over. In other words, God's judgment is saying to us, essentially, if this is what you want, I will let you do it. And you will yield certain results from that path that hopefully will sober you, quicken you to your condition and your need. One theologian put it this way, the penalty for sin is sin. If we want it, God lets us have it. And sin is the opposite of life. Just as God is the author of life and sin is God's antithesis, when we pursue sin instead of life, we decompose, we disintegrate. That's what happens. And you can sometimes even tell when it's in the process of happening to your own person. And so by citing the Old Testament and its dark history, Paul warns the Corinthians and by proxy warns us about the consequences of sin here and now. But then he goes further. He talks about the causes for judgment. Now, he's already established the facthood of judgment. Now, the causes for judgment. In verses 4, excuse me, verses 7 through 12, Paul mentions four things from Old Testament history that trigger God's judgment. And these four things are things that the Corinthian church loved to practice with great relish. Um, Let us count them. Verse 7, do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 died on a single day. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So four sins are mentioned here. Idolatry. Right? That's when you take a good thing, make it an ultimate thing, to the degree that it becomes a destructive thing. Uh, That could happen with anything. And the ancient world was often concretized in in, in certain forms that were then worshipped and, well, idolized in our time. It tends to be more internal, but not always. Um, or at least the feeling is more internal or expressed religiously more internally. It could have to do with an over-devotion to family, a religious denomination, nationality, children, the education of children, the acceptance of our peers, whatever. Idolatry. Also sexual immorality. Uh, We're seeing this in spades right now, especially, uh, it seems, within the church that has for years uh, covered up all sorts of sexual abuse We've seen that in the Roman Catholic Church and in American evangelicalism in really horrific ways. And I wonder, friends, if the grand exposure of all these things is in fact part of God's judgment on the church for its horrific behavior. But I want you to notice so that's idolatry and sexual immorality, but notice that two out of the four, two out of, so I'm not a mathematician, but that's half, two out of four causes for judgment have to do with the same thing. And that thing is, Grumbling. Grumbling. Verse 10 mentions grumbling outright and specifically, nor grumble as some of them did. And verse 9 strongly alludes to it. Verse 9 is, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. What is that? That's a story in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, from Numbers 21. And in Numbers 21, God sent snakes To bite the Israelites as a punishment. What was the reason for the snakes? How is this a testing of Christ? Well, I will read unto you the passage from Numbers 21. This is what it says. The people grumbled, grumbled against God and Moses saying, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? 50% 50% of Paul's concern regarding God's judgment or triggers for God's judgment has to do with grumbling. What is grumbling? merriam Webster can help us. It is to complain in a bad-tempered way or to mutter discontent. I'm going to stay in grumbling territory for a while. Paul emphasizes it, and he mentions it twice, and it is, after idolatry, the, uh, the greatest cause of God's judgment in the Old Testament. I'd also like to zero in on this because idolatry and sexual immorality are in some ways more obviously lethal, whereas this one is more seductively subtle. And we give ourselves passes with it all the time. Not me, but you. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I love that you laugh because you know that's ridiculous. Friends, I find that it is so easy, so easy for Christians to get enraged by sexual immorality in the church or in the broader world. And those things ought to afflict us. But if we are not just as upset with our own grumbling, we're not being biblical. Because Paul says that grumbling is a deadly offense. And notice the punishment for it in the Old Testament is just the same as the punishment for various perversions. So let us now... Here a litmus test for grumbling. I have consulted various uh, leaders, both religious and secular, about marks of a grumbler, and I've come up with twelve. <laughs> I will read them to you over the next half hour. No, I'll, 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 I'll be brief. I'll be brief. But see if see if this lands for you. Let's see if the plane lands. Number one, grumblers rarely see themselves. As grumblers. They simply share their concerns in a generous manner. <laughs> Point two, grumblers are almost never satisfied. No one and nothing is quite good enough. And if you meet a grumbler's demand in one area, they'll simply start grumbling about something else. Point three, grumblers cannot discern majors from minors because there are no minor issues. Everything is a slippery slope, and everything could become apocalyptic at any minute. Fourth, Grumblers cannot handle disagreement, because those who disagree with them are not only wrong, they're enemies. Stupid, immoral, even subhuman. Five, grumblers complain that they are not being heard when they are not obeyed. Grumblers think that the only way they are truly listened to means that people end up agreeing with them and doing whatever they say. Six, grumblers are insubmissive. If they can't get their way, they don't play, or they play the victim. See, this is how I'm treated just when I raise a simple heartfelt concern. Seven, grumblers gossip. If the grumbler can't achieve what they want, they proselytize and make more grumblers so that they can add pressure to the person that is resisting them. Eight, grumblers are bullies. They usually can't bully by means of physical prowess, so they bully through verbal complaints and written charges. The goal is to weigh someone down or wear them down until they finally give in. Nine, grumblers ward off critique. Their friends are terrified to get lambasted by them, so their friends keep their mouths shut. And they have fewer and fewer friends over the years because of this. Ten, grumblers tend to justify their grumbling. After all, they're just pursuing truth. They just care about justice. They're just perceptive and Discerning. Eleven, if grumblers grumble to you, they'll grumble about you. And oh, have I learned this the hard way. And twelve, lastly, grumblers, when they hear this list, will grumble, thinking that I've yet again been misunderstood. Now, what I've just said, or particularly what St. Paul has said afflicts you, Please don't blame me. I didn't write the Bible, neither the Old Testament nor the New, and most of that list comes from other people, so I'll give you their email addresses. And please, I don't want any mean emails after this sermon, and I don't want any defensive and excuse-making for grumbling or saying, well, grumbling isn't really grumbling because we're right about something, and that's all that matters. Being right about something is not all that matters. You can be right in something in such a mode or in such a way that makes you a horrific human being. Being right is not enough. The manner or mode in which we communicate is crucial. Now, some will rightly ask at this point, are you saying that there's never room for voicing concerns? Yes, that's exactly... No. No. Of course that's what I'm... No, of course that's not what I'm saying. Um, it is not grumbling, for example, to vocalize when you or someone else you know has been abused, for example, or been terribly mistreated. It's a righteous thing to complain about such things. Also, no leader, not me, nor anyone else, is infallible. We need to be challenged at times because we, are, we have blind spots all over the place. But friends, there is a Christian way to challenge. There is a Christian mode of challenge, and it is done with civility, humility, and without assuming that the one you are critiquing is motivated by the most base instincts of the human condition. That if they disagree with you, it's clearly malevolence. Also, the complaint maker must, must realize that they could be dead wrong about their complaint or only see half the truth and be humble enough to hear the rest of the story. What I've realized over time, though, is that grumblers are grumblers very often because they have old, untreated wounds. They have something in their core that has been unconsoled. But here's the problem. It's like when you have undigested food in your stomach, your whole body gets infected. Grumbling is the same way. It creates a halitosis of the soul. It creates this horrific a sin of the mouth, but it starts with a sin of the heart. Remember, Jesus taught us this, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if you have a grumbling problem, you have a soul problem, and you need to square that away with God, because if you don't, everything gets worse the judgment will rail against you and and what happens is you start malforming all of your relationships and everybody is afraid of you and they don't want to deal with you they won't be honest with you and you're just you'll you'll be alone you'll be like this harsh critic without enough love in life and then you'll start malforming other people if if you're a grumbler and your children are raised with grumbling you'll create little pharisees little self righteous monsters who have to then be broken by life and that is a cruel thing to do to a child grumbling is a very serious thing like it's a it's a horrific satanic sin and we ought not to put up with it in ourselves and all of these things according to paul idolatry sexual immorality and grumbling require repentance so what does repentance look like if you're a grumbler a few thoughts for you First, since grumblers are often deaf to their own grumbling, if you suspect this might be true of you, please ask someone else if it's true of you, like a trusted friend or a pastor, and then be willing to hear them if they say this might be an issue. They'll probably be terrified to say yes to you, but they'll say, you know, sometimes, maybe, we all struggle, but maybe, maybe it's true of you. And that means, oh my gosh, I have a massive crisis on my hands. Two, Limit yourself to one piece of critical correspondence per year. One. If you feel you need to be the prophetic spokesman to the world more than once a year, you are taking yourself way too seriously. And you might need to add narcissism to your list of concerns. (laughs) Really. By the way, I've read some of the, or or heard from professors, some of the um, student evals that they get uh, at the end of the year. I'm ashamed. It's horrific. No human should ever have to hear those words. I would never in a million years write that to anybody, ever. Keep in mind, people read these things, and those words, as you know, roll around in the cul-de-sac of the mind for 20 years. You can really hurt people. All of us can hurt each other. That's what friendship is, by the way. Like, friendship is, like, real friendship is. I'm giving you a loaded pistol, and I'm asking you not to shoot me. That is, I'm going to give you things that could be weaponized against my person. Please don't hurt me. There is a way to charitably deal with each other which isn't dehumanizing and cruel. So limit yourself to one piece of critical correspondence and make it nicer than you think it should be. Um, Point three, take grumbling energy which exists in all of us, you know, the tense shoulders, the hot face, the need to vocalize right away, where you're talking so fast about something that you're so mad about you get out of breath and give it vertical expression before you give it horizontal expression. You need to go to God first. It isn't that your concerns don't matter, but you have to do what the scriptures say. The scriptures say, Pass all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Don't verbally barf in everybody else's direction because you're going to like really disgust and hurt people. Really, if you don't go to God first, your language isn't sanctified and then you end up being a vehicle for the power of hell. It's a very serious thing. And so give it to God first and then he has a way of filtering who we are in the inside and filtering our words. Fourth, and this is really important. You need, if you are this way, to make amends today. Don't put it off any longer. In fact, do, do me a favor, everybody who's in here, except the people in the very back, because they can't, this will not apply to them. To just look behind you, really. Look behind you right now. Face the other people. Yep. You're seeing people, at least the back of somebody's head. <laughs> you can face me again. Uh, you're facing people whom you may have offended with your own verbal cruelty let me say this to you. We offer the peace in this church not as an opportunity to say hi to each other, though that's fine. The peace is actually given liturgically so that if you have an offense to confess and a sin to ask pardon for, you do it before you come to the Lord's table, because this is a sign of unity for the church, and we don't fudge on unity and pretend that everything's fine when it's not fine. And so if you wounded somebody in this building today, we're going to take an extended time of the piece today, and you need to go and apologize to that person, even if you think they're an idiot or they're partially wrong too. In human relationships, we are all at times idiots, and we are all partially wrong. That doesn't mean you can't apologize for your part of a particular thing. Please, let's not play religion here and like, play lip service and sentimental Jesus instead of actually having this be real. If there's somebody here whom you've hurt by grumbling or spoken lovingly toward or sent a needlessly intense or barky email to or didn't assume the best of, please go and apologize. And let's not treat sacred things with compartmentalized indifference. Mm. Lastly, please know this if you're a grumbler. Christ died for grumblers. Now grumbling is a sin for which Christ had to make atonement. But he did die for you. There was a bloodletting savior for you too. To offer a conclusion for all of us, not just the grumblers, our eternity and the future resurrection and our justified status before God is completely secure, only by naked grace. But when the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament fight against reality, reality tends to push back. There are temporal consequences for it. And very importantly, we can only repent for ourselves before God. It's easy to rail against the sins of other people in the White House or in the Evangelical Church in America or or my ex or my spouse. Listen, God's not going to judge you for their sins. Judgment only comes to us because of our own sins, and we can only repent for ourselves. We can't fix anyone else ever. This is why we offer an opportunity liturgically in this service for repentance at every single worship service, because we are, to quote Martin Luther, simo justus et peccator, or simultaneously justified and still sinful. And the peccator still looms large. And so that's why we need to keep repenting. I know, friends, this is a hard word. It's a hard word for me to say. It's a hard word for me to hear. But it's meant to heal. One of our dearest friends, who's now been here a few times, her name is Janet Broderick. She's Abilina's godmother. The first time she met me, I was 21. And I think she hated my guts. Uh, she was speaking on a retreat. And I was—I decided to give her some feedback mid-course. <laughs> I was a hyper-opinionated, very critical, grumbling, blind Monster. And I turned people off to the themes of the retreat with lots of little criticisms and needling attacks. And at one time during dinner, Janet, and if you know her, she has no filter at all, she looks at me uh, and she says, Ethan, Ethan, please, please shut up. <laughs> You're ridiculous. I don't know what your problem is, but it sounds like you've got more than one. <laughs> I can't tell you what that comment did. It created in me an inward tailspin. You know, I was just furious at first. She doesn't know me well enough to talk to me like that. I'm doing fine in life, especially compared compared to my family and all my friends. You know, at least I'm here on this retreat trying to lead kids to Jesus. How dare she speak to me in that way? You know, and I just went, of course, because I'm an idiot. But then, then after like I slept and calmed down, this is what happened. Dear God, she's right. She's right. My problems are real and they are not peripheral and they will not be easily solved. What did she do? She gave me the law, which set me up for the gospel. gospel. The law is always the first word of God that precedes the second word of God. But you can't understand the second word of God until you've been leveled by the first word of God. And the first word of God laid me low friends. And I realize because I'm not, always an idiot, that this sermon is almost nothing but unadulterated law. But some texts are like that. And moreover, Lent is kind of like that. Lent beckons us toward needful discomfort and inconvenient truths. Why? Because without the sobering of law and judgment, no one wakes up, no one changes, no one repents, and no one gets healthy. And if we are not sobered to rightly perceive our condition, we will never know the gospel of 200-proof pardon. So my hope, friends, today is that we feel the law, and then we reach out for the gospel of complete exoneration and healthful transformation. Because when we reach out to the God of the gospel, that same God of the gospel will never in a million years cast us out. Amen. They couldn't